Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 16, 1 through 6. This is on page 11 of your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, don't have one at home, please take that one home as a gift from us. Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as her, her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome. Good morning. Uh, We're so glad that you're with us this morning here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. My name's Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's my joy now to lead us in a time of teaching where we open God's Word and uh, open ourselves up to Him to, to speak through it to our lives this morning. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Father God, we need your help to understand your word and to do anything with it. So Lord, would you, through the power of your spirit, stimulate our minds, encourage our hearts, and let your words sink into our very bones this morning as we hear them read and explained. God, give us the grace and the trust to lean into these truths that we're going to look at this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Names matter. Names matter. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you gave something a name? Have you ever had a, a moment in your life where you, you named something? It could be a, a child that you named. Uh, it could be a pet. Uh, maybe you named a business. Uh, maybe even a plant. Uh, I, do, I do know people who name their plants. That's a real thing. Uh, if that's you, no, no judgment. But maybe you named a plant. Who knows? It could also be something that you created. Maybe uh, you wrote a poem or a book uh, and you named that. Uh, Maybe it's a work of art that that you created and you named that. Uh, Maybe you built something with your hands or crafted, uh, helped craft a piece of technology. Uh, Maybe it's just an area of your house that you just decorated exactly how you want it and you've given that place a name. Have you ever given something a name? Maybe you didn't give something a name, but maybe it already had a name and you've nicknamed something. Maybe you have a nickname for your spouse or a friend uh, or a favorite place or activity. Have you ever given something a name? When we name things like this, what tends to be true is it's almost always the case that the name we give is connected to some sort of experience or story 
There's something behind the name. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Uh, growing up, uh, my childhood pet, my family and I, we had a, a black lab. I think I have a picture here on the screen. Uh, that was her. She's since passed on. Um, but, but this was our childhood pet. And as you could expect of a black lab, her name was Bunny. And many people ask, why did you name your dog Bunny? And I say, that's a really good question. Uh, the only reason behind it is that we got her during Easter season, and in a memorable debate in the car on the way home from picking her out, my brother just threw the name out there, and we were stuck with a lovable dog and an unfortunate name, Bunny. But the point is, there, there's a story behind it. Similarly, we mentioned nicknames a little bit ago. Uh, throughout most of high school, some of my closest friends called me Spud. That was my nickname, Spud. I have a picture that I thought it captured that reality very well. Um, that's me on the left, my friend Brett. Uh, but I was called Spud, and it was not because I looked like a potato. Uh, that happened in my 20s. Then I didn't look like a potato. Now I look like a potato. But I didn't back then, that's not why. It was because of an experience that we had together. I don't even remember what the experience was, but something funny happened, someone maybe said something funny, and from that moment on, because of that moment, I was called Spud. There's a story behind it. Recently, my wife and I, we, we already had one dog, we got a, a second dog. Most of my experience naming things is dogs, so sorry about it. Um, at least it's not plants, right? It's not plants, it's dogs. But it didn't take long after seeing this dog to think of her name. Almost immediately, there's a picture up here I think of her too. You can say, aw, she's cute. It didn't take long for us to think of her name. Immediately, we called her Luna, after the all-time great Harry Potter character, Luna Lovegood. And our reasoning was very simple. She looks like a Luna. We were describing her appearance and what we thought was her personality, and it is absolutely crazy how much that name has rung true for this dog. She's become the most quirky, aloof, lovable dog. In fact, even this week, Ashton and I looked at each other and said, she is such a Luna. Have you had that experience before when you've named something? Maybe you've experienced this naming kids. When we name kids, it's usually, not always, but it's usually connected to something deeper, isn't it? Maybe it's something as simple as the name of a favorite movie or book character, or the name of a beloved family member, or maybe it's just a word that you love that carries some sort of significant, important meaning to you. And usually in this case, it's, it's always something that's, that's either already true about that person or what we want to be true of the child. So, so it might be, hey, this moment happened, and, and it makes me want to call you this. Or I, I really hope you turn out like this, or that you always remember this about you, so I'm going to call you this. Or maybe it's this person was, was special in our lives, and we want their story to live on through you. Whatever it is, naming things has been a part of being human as long as language has existed. Throughout history, different cultures and languages have looked at something and said, I call this blank. And it almost always has a reason. Maybe it's that the person naming it experienced that thing in a certain way or because of how it looks or acts or how it made an impact on the person's life. Maybe it's because of what they, they hope that thing will be in the future. But whatever the case, we name things to try to understand them, to speak things over them, to try to explain them or remember them. Names matter. 
And that's why we're going through this Advent series and taking some time to walk through this, this short series that we're calling, He Shall Be Called. Because the Bible is filled with names for God. And the names we use for God matter most of all because they speak to who he is at his very core. They speak to the very essence of who God is. The names we use for God matter because they witness to the various ways that we see him, the various ways that we try to explain him, the various ways we've experienced him. The names we use for God reflect the ways that he's intervened in our stories and through the stories of others throughout human history. And this morning, we're actually going to look at the very first person and actually the only person recorded in Scripture to give God a name. This is the only person to name God. It happens even before God reveals his own name to the people of Israel, Yahweh, I am. It happens even before that moment, all the way back in Genesis 16, that we heard part of read for us this morning. And I think what we read in this passage is incredibly, incredibly significant for the way that we see God. And that's not only because of the name that's given, but because of who it is that names him. Because see, it isn't a patriarch. It isn't a classic hero of the faith. It isn't even an Israelite that names God. It's an Egyptian. It's a slave. It's a woman, and her name is Hagar. Now, Hagar's story is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, so we're going to spend some time really walking through and sitting in her story together this morning, because I believe that it carries a message of profound hope for every one of us in this room. It carries a message of profound hope for each and every one of us. So, <clears throat> excuse me, if you haven't already, uh, please open your Bibles, join me in Genesis 16. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we also have verses on the screen. I'm actually going to uh, read from the NIV because I think it captures a couple nuances here a little bit better uh, in this particular story, so you can follow along on the screen with me as well. But join me in reading Genesis 16. The author sets, up, sets the stage for the story in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, this opening verse is pretty simple. It sets the context and the tension of the entire chapter, but to really understand everything that's going on here, we need a little bit more background to this sentence. See, a few chapters earlier, in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abram who had never heard of him before. He called this man named Abram, and he called him to follow him. In fact, his actual command was just go. Like, where do I go? I don't know. Just go. Go. So God says, go, Abram. And with sending him, he gave him a promise. And the promise was that God would build a large nation with his family, that he would settle them down in a desirable land, and that he would use Abram's people to bless others. So it's, it's lots of descendants living in land, blessing others. That was part of the promise. And as these promises unfold over the next few chapters of Genesis, God makes it known that he will make it possible for Abram and Sarai to get pregnant. And that's a really big deal because Abram and Sarai are both super old, and what we know about Sarai is that she's barren. She can't have kids. But God says he's going to enable them to get pregnant. 
And this very promise is the key event that enables all other promises to come true. Without a child being born, there can't be a large family that becomes a nation that lives in a land that blesses other people. That can't happen unless this promise comes true. But God says, through this very child that I'm going to give you, I will see to it that Abram's offspring is more numerous than the stars of the sky. That's the promise. Lots and lots and lots of offspring. But it doesn't happen overnight. And Abram and Sarai have to wait for God to make good on his word. And in the period of waiting, they, they've journeyed to a number of different places, including Egypt, uh, where they went to get food during a famine. And that's where it appears they received the woman named Hagar as a slave. We don't know how old Hagar was at this point, and we don't know what happened to her that brought her slavery about, but somehow, in some way, she's enslaved. And she's been given by Egypt to Abram and Sarai. And after the famine is over, Abram and Sarai leave Egypt and take Hagar with them. And she's taken away from everything and everyone that she once knew. Just imagine what that would be like. But it's about to get a little bit, well, a lot. It's about to get a lot worse for Hagar. Look at verse 2. So she said, this is Sarai speaking, she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, which gives you a picture for how long they've been waiting already, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. So Sarai, she's getting tired of waiting around to have a child. And because she's barren, she doesn't really see any hope for her to be the one who gets pregnant with Abram's child. So she starts to kind of doubt the promise of God. Maybe we misheard it. Maybe there's another way it can happen. But she's doubting a little bit of God's promise. And we have to remember, this is true today, but especially in ancient Near Eastern culture, having children culturally was one of the greatest sources of honor for women. So this is a really, really important thing for Sarai, which means that Sarai in this moment, if you can just picture what she's feeling, she's filled with shame because she can't have kids and impatient impatience because she's tired of waiting to get them. She's filled with shame and impatience. And I don't know about you, when I'm filled with shame and impatience, I usually don't make the smartest decisions. So Sarai comes up with a plan, and her plan's simple. Sleep with Hagar. Sleep with Hagar. Now, this might seem like a super weird solution to us. This isn't something we do very often today, but in the ancient Near East, in the culture in which this was written, it was a commonly accepted way, actually, for barren women to have the honor of a family. They could, they could use a, a slave or a servant, and that, that person was treated as a legal extension of, of their mistress. And so, so she would be acting on Sarai's behalf and providing a child for Abram. So this was a common practice. But even though it was culturally acceptable, that doesn't mean it was a good idea. And just sidebar, just because something's culturally acceptable doesn't always mean it's a good idea, Right? <laughs> And in fact, this seems like a pretty terrible idea. It's easy on the other side of it for us to see how much potential this has for absolute disaster. And it becomes clear that God doesn't approve of this idea either. Old Testament scholar John Salehammer explains what is going on in this, this plan that Sarai makes. Here's what he says. He says, Sarai's plan 
was one more example of the futility of human efforts to achieve God's blessing. An attempt to circumvent God's plan of blessing in favor of gaining a blessing on her own. And before we get to to judging Sarai, just take a moment to think about the times when you've had to wait for something you really want. Just think about those moments. How many of us have taken things into our own hands and tried to force the hand of God? I have. And that's what Sarai's doing. And we have to resist the urge that's, that's easy for us to, to do, to, to think that we would have done any better in that situation. But as with our own attempts to, to usurp the plans and purposes of God, uh, it doesn't go well for Sarai. Abram sleeps with Hagar. She becomes his wife, legally. She gets pregnant, and then everything unravels. Let's continue in verse 4. It says, when she knew, <coughs> excuse me, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. I wonder why. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, who saw that coming, right? Sarai hates Hagar. Hagar hates Sarai. Sarai blames Abram. This is basically what you'd expect from a story like this. Is there any other way it could have gone? So Sarai complains to Abram and asks him to do something about the situation. And Abram just couldn't go on watching this mess without doing something stupid himself. So look what he does in verse 6. He says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. So Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. Like, bro, what are you doing? This is your wife now, and she is pregnant with your child. But instead of helping them reconcile and bringing peace to the situation, Abram turns his back on them and just says, do what you want. And we can't miss what this do what you want does. It turns someone of upper-class status who is filled with jealousy, anger, and contempt, loose on a helpless slave who, by the way, didn't ask for any of this in the first place. And Sarai abuses Hagar. So Hagar has no choice but to run away, pregnant, unprotected, into the wilderness. And the indication we're given is that she's trying to get back home to Egypt. And she could hardly be in a more vulnerable position, right? Like the equation woman plus slave plus pregnant plus in the middle of nowhere plus ancient Near Eastern culture was not a good combination for someone hoping to make it home alive or safe. She's in an incredibly vulnerable position. And just take a minute to really sit and imagine the complex emotions she's feeling as she goes. Like she has to be reeling as she's going down the road. You think of the moments when you've had some of the worst fights and you just can't, uh, can't wrap your mind around what's going on. There's so many emotions flooding you. And you're just dealing with those. She has to be reeling. She has to be feeling confused. She's hurting emotionally, physically, and spiritually, abused in every way. She has to feel abandoned, unheard, overlooked, used for sure, alone, desperate, and incredibly incredibly unseen. Which makes this next line 
one of the most powerful lines in all of Scripture. Read verse 7 with me. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Hmm. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. That phrase, angel of the Lord, it can mean a lot of different things, but there's really good reason to believe here that this messenger is actually God himself, which means that at her lowest, at her most alone, feeling more neglected than she ever has in her life, God finds Hagar. And don't miss this. Hagar didn't just stumble upon God. This isn't like she's playing Pokemon and it's like a wild God appeared. That's not what's happening. No, it's abundantly clear that God was intentionally looking for her, right? That before she even knew who he was, he was seeking her out. And he finds her when she's at her worst. And he addresses her three times. The first comes in verse 8. Here's what he says. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She responds, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Now, before we go on, notice a couple of things here. First, notice that God calls Hagar by name. He calls her by name. This is remarkable just in general that God would call any person by name, but this is an especially remarkable instance because it's the only time in all of ancient Near Eastern literature, so the Old Testament or any of the writings written in that era, that we ever see a deity say the name of a woman to them. It's the only time that we see a deity calling a woman by name. So in the same story, we have both the only time that anyone names God in the Old Testament and the only time that God names a woman or any deity in ancient Near Eastern literature. It's remarkable. Notice also that God does not begin by demanding things of Hagar, but by asking questions of her. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? When God asks questions like this, where are you? Where are you going? What's going on? Uh, what do you want? When he asks these in Scripture, it is always an invitation to relationship. He's inviting her to share honestly what she's going through with him. He's inviting her into a relationship. And after he's asked the questions and heard what she's said, he says something that honestly, personally, is really hard for me to make sense of. And it might be for you too. Look what he says next. Verse 9, The angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. He tells her to go back. And as a reader, you're like, wait a minute, what? Like back to the people who mistreated her? Back to, to everything that she's been running away from? Like why would God do this? And before we get to why God does this, I really want to make clear a few reasons that he is not telling her to go back. First, he isn't telling her to go back because he approves of Abram and Sarai's actions. This is not like they were right for mistreating you, you have to go back to them. That's not why he's telling her to go back. He also isn't telling her to go back to, because he disapproves of her fleeing. It's not like she should feel some shame for, for leaving in such a dire circumstance. That's not what he's saying either. And please hear this well. Genesis 16 is not a proof text commanding anyone to stay in an abusive relationship. It's not. God also isn't telling her to go back because he's ignoring her suffering. In fact, as we're going to see in a couple of verses, it's the exact opposite. He's not ignoring what she's going through. So why, why does he say this? The best answer 
is that returning is the best hope for her and her child. Anything else in that time in their situation would have meant almost certain death for both of them. And what we also see is he isn't sending her home empty-handed. He's actually sending her with his blessing and assurance of her protection. Look at what, she, look what he says in verse 10. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Which means he's going to protect her and he's going to bless her. This phrase, increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count, it's almost identical actually to the promise that he made to Abram just a chapter earlier. And he's making the same exact promise here to Hagar, an Egyptian slave, and to her son who is not the promised child God has said he would give. In other words, God is meeting her suffering with abundant blessing. With abundant blessing. He goes on in verse 11. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant. She's like, I think I knew that. (laughs) And you will give birth to a son. And you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. And he will be, this is the best description of any person ever. He will be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. So first he tells her, name your son Ishmael. And Ishmael is Hebrew, a Hebrew phrase that means God hears. So her son will forever Every time she says his name, every time she thinks of her son, every time she looks her son in the face, he will forever be a witness to the fact that God heard her in her misery and protected her in her vulnerability. And God doesn't oversell the future. He doesn't promise that Ishmael's life will be sunshine and roses or or that Hagar will never face any trouble again with Abram and Sarai. He doesn't oversell it. He actually says, Ishmael, he's going to have some some relational issues with other people. It's not going to be great. But if you still have any question or doubt in your heart that maybe Hagar is taking this as bad news that she has to go back, just look at how she responds in verse 13 and it'll wipe all of that away. Here's what it says. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. What a remarkable name. You are the God who sees me. I've seen, I've come face to face, I've encountered a God who sees me. And there's no indication that we get in this text that Hagar knows this is Yahweh or knows anything about the God she's encountering. So the only words she has for describing his nature and the nature of this God are based off of her experience with him. That's all she has to go off of. And based off of her experience with him, here's her conclusion. He sees. And not only does he see, He sees me. And not only does he see me as if from a distance, he sees me in all my mess, in all my sadness, in all my pain and misery. That word misery, or it could be translated affliction, is used three times in this passage for really good reason. That God does not just see her, he sees her when she's at her worst, and he seeks her out. Friends, can I remind you of a truth that's as profound and encouraging as it is simple this morning? God sees you. God sees you. See, Hagar, she wasn't just describing something that God did once. That's not the language that she uses here. 
No, she was describing something that is at the very core of who God is. He can't not be like this. It's the very essence of who he is. It's part of his character and his nature. The language she uses is not, you are a God who saw me once, but you are the God who sees. Some translations use the phrase, the the God of seeing, to get at that idea. God sees you, which is encouraging. When I was in high school, uh, as one does when they're in high school, there was a girl who I had a pretty strong crush on. I was very interested in this girl, and so I did what anyone would do in that situation. I memorized her class schedule, and I knew exactly where she would be every moment of the day, so I would go out of my way to randomly appear at the right place at the right time, like, oh, hey, what? It's crazy running into you here. Um, and I'd just go way out of my way. Class, I wouldn't be, even be close to that class, but I'd just go out of my way because I knew it should be. Some, pe- some people call it creepy. I call it cute, okay? It's cute. Stop, stop looking at me like that. Um, now, why did I do this? Because I wanted her to notice me, right? I wanted her to take notice of me, to, to see me. It's a silly illustration of something that's deeply human. See, the reality is we all want to be seen. No matter who we are, We all want to be seen. It's central to what it means to be human. There's a a friend of of mine who who goes to to this church. I actually saw him last night, and this exact interaction happens. It's happened multiple times with this person where I say, hey, man, it's really good to see you. And he responds, it's good to be seen. And I just love that because it's good to be seen, isn't it? We all want to be seen. Here's how leading neurobiologist Kurt Thompson puts it. We long to be seen, heard, and felt by one whom we sense desires, truly wants, to see us, hear us, and feel us. This isn't just something that we develop over time. It starts from birth. Here's how he continues. Every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for him or her. We all want to be seen. And the thing is, we don't just want someone who sees us in passing in the hallway, like, why are you at my class? I saw you earlier this morning at my other class. We don't just want that. We want something more. We want to be genuinely and deeply seen and known by other people. Here's Thompson again. He says, we must first, literally, be seen across the entire breadth of our emotional condition. So not just, oh, I see you and I know your name and you're over there, but like, I see everything you're going through, all of the pain, all of the sadness. We want someone to take notice of those things. We want someone to acknowledge our accomplishments. We want to be seen in that way. We want someone, we want to see someone who recognizes our very humanity. We all want to be seen. Hagar did. And you know what? God saw her. And here's what I think is really cool about this. Because God saw her, we know her story. If God had not gone to find her, we would never know Hagar's story. She would have died in the wilderness probably, unseen, unknown, uncared for. But because God saw her, we know her story. And her story bears witness to the incredible reality that the same God who saw Hagar in the wilderness sees you right now. That same God sees you right now. Wherever you are, he sees you. Whatever you're going through, he sees you. No matter how unseen and overlooked you feel, he sees you. Where you're sitting this morning, 
which is encouraging news, especially this time of year, because as joyful as Christmas can be, it's also a time where many of us feel overlooked, isn't it? We feel overlooked when we are, are flooded with, with romantic Hallmark movies and singleness just feels like a burden. We feel overlooked when we see families gathering together when ours are at each other's throats. We feel overlooked when we see others whose parents are still together and we're still silently carrying the weight of our parents' divorce. We feel overlooked because every Christmas is a reminder of the empty chair at the table or because this is the first year spent without a loved one or because it's another Christmas without the child that we've yearned for or because we're scrambling yet again to make ends meet or a family member's dealing with sickness and it, sometimes it, it just doesn't seem like anyone notices or cares. And I want to just take a few minutes to pause and reflect together. And what I want each of us to do is just grab something that you can write on. You can type a note in your phone. You can grab a piece of paper in front of you, write in your actual Bible, whatever it is. Just grab something to write on. And I want you to write this phrase down somewhere and then fill in the blank. Here's what it is. God sees me in my blank. God sees me in my, you name it. And in the blank, put something or some way that you feel overlooked or unseen right now. Something that you wish people would notice. God sees me in my blank. I'll give you a couple minutes to reflect and to write that down. Where do you need to be reminded? In what areas of your life do you need to rest in the truth that God sees you? We all want to be seen. And God is a God who wants us to know that we're seen. Even in the very spots where we feel most overlooked, God has taken notice of you. We're currently in the church season in the liturgical calendar of Advent. In the season of Advent, it's a time where we look back at the first coming of Jesus at Christmas with celebration. And at the same time, we look forward to his second coming with longing and hope where he's going to make all things right. And friends, I think that Advent is a season for the unseen. Advent is a season for the unseen. During Advent, we join with the people of Israel who, who waited and waited for God to send a king and free them from their oppression. One of my favorite Advent hymns is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's all about our solidarity with that idea of Israel just waited and waited and waited. And after 400 years of silence before Jesus was born, where they didn't hear from the prophets, the people of Israel were like, don't you see us anymore, God? Don't you see that we're occupied by Rome? Don't you see the injustice that surrounds us? Don't you care about your people anymore? Do you see us? And today as the church, we can feel much the same. 2,000 years on the other side of the birth of Christ, some of us might ask, don't you see me anymore, God? Don't you see what I'm going through in my life? Don't you see what the church is facing right now? Don't you see the rampant injustice that we still see in our world? Do you see it? And if I can encourage you with something, it's that Advent is a season for the overlooked to cry out to God and trust that he hears them in their misery. And as we wait for him, we can rest in the reality borne witness to by the life of Hagar that God does, in fact, see us. And nothing proved this more than when he came to find us in Jesus.
the ultimate act of seeing. We're just like Hagar. God isn't waiting for us to stumble into him by accident. He's out looking for us. He's out looking for you. He sees you even if you're here this morning and you have never seen him before. And the incarnation of his son when his son took on flesh showed that there are no lengths to which he will not go to find you. There's no lengths he won't go to find you. So can I encourage us as we close with something this Christmas? When you feel overlooked, look to the God who sees you. When you feel overlooked, look to the God who sees you. When you face moments this holiday season where you feel overlooked and unseen, turn your eyes to the one whose eyes are already on you and are staring back into them with delight. Turn yourself to the one who knows you deeply, knows the depths of your heart, and still loves you fully. When you feel overlooked, look to the God who sees you. We're going to close this morning with the words of Psalm 33, which has been an encouragement to me when I felt overlooked in the past. So please let these, just let these words wash over you this morning. I just want to close your eyes and listen to them. Let them wash over you this morning as the story of Hagar is still ringing in your ears. Here's what the psalmist says. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling places he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in the famine. And especially this Advent season, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Please pray with me. God, we do pray that your unfailing love would sustain us, that it would strengthen and comfort us by the the fact that you are faithful even when we're tired of waiting, even when our hope falters, even when we feel unnoticed, uncared for, desperate that even when we aren't faithful to you, you are faithful to us. Let that love remind us and help us rest in the truth that you see us this morning and that you know us and that you love us through and through. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit, who's with us here. Amen.